Open God's holy word to Peter's second letter, chapter 3. Our focus this morning will be on verses 11 through 18. I'll be reading chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. This is now the second letter that I'm writing you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will, be, will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant us grace to repent of our narrow focus 
on the time that is immediately before us, both right now and just the near future, in such a way that we are we're consumed with worshiping an idol because what it can offer us right now, or we're anxious over what the next day might hold instead of resting and being at peace, readiness for the coming of the eternal day. Father, grant us grace to pursue godliness and holiness. In Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. Eschatology is that field of theology that is concerned with the eschaton, that is the end, the last things. Eschatology has fallen on hard times. It's not, uh, not the class that everyone's dying to enroll in these days. And I think this is principally so for two reasons. One is we fail to realize that all the New Testament is eschatological. As you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll notice that the prophets thought of the coming of, of the Lord, and they, they, it, to us it might seem that they were conflating things. But I think the problem is more so that we are dividing things. Y yeah, they had a problem in that they expected whenever the king came, he would immediately make all things new. Our problem is failing to realize that Jesus' second advent and his first advent are connected. This is why you read through the Gospels and the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God has come. This is why Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost that the prophecy that Joel gave concerning the last days is being fulfilled. This is why the author of the letter of Hebrews could tell us that in these last days God spoke to us through His Son. And it's why the Apostle John could tell us that it is the last hour. The New Testament is eschatological. The end has come. The future is present. It's not fully here yet, but it is breaking into the present. But I lay the bigger blame at the foot of Bible prophecy man, Bible chart man. One reason being that he simply doesn't own up to the previous explanation that all the New Testament is eschatological. That's not a highlight of his teaching. But he's cried shepherd so many times that we're not on guard against the wolf anymore. We've become cynical. So many Christians have zero tolerance even for a biblical and true eschatology because of this. Now this isn't to say that we don't think of the end at all. Only that we think of it in a very shallow and vague and sentimental way. We like to think of the end whenever it will pacify our conscience or give us comfort in the face of death. But anything more serious and thorough than that, we really don't deal with. Biblical eschatology should give you hope in the face of death, but if that's all it does, it isn't biblical. It should give you not only hope in light of death, it should propel you and give you grace to live in the present. 
It has been said that you can be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. We might adapt that a bit and say one could be so future focused that they're of no present worth. And while there may be an element of truth there, it obscures a greater truth. If your meditation on heaven and your focus on the future cause you to be worthless in the present, you're doing it wrong. Whenever Bible chart man comes along and he begins to unfold Daniel or Revelation or some part of the scripture and gives us all his explanations, what's the result of it? I think it's most often a a spirit of panic, fear, anxiety, Fear of the wrong sort, not the fear of the Lord. It's a fear more so regarded to losing our stuff and our time. We had plans, ambitions. Bible prophecy man sits down with his newspaper in one hand and his Bible in the other and tries to interpret the Bible with the newspaper. And then he tells us that the end is near and the result is pandemonium initially And thereafter, after he's cried shepherd so many times, cynicism. But again and again, the Bible tells us that readiness for the coming of the Lord is not a matter of chronological awareness, but ethical preparedness. Eschatology is not a mystery to be solved. It's a truth to be lived right now. The irony is that Bible prophecy man with his newspaper in one hand and his Bible in the other turns out to be the least relevant for today. Biblical eschatology speaks to how you ought to live right now. The saints' meditation on the coming of Christ and the destruction of the world should not lead to panic and fear we see in our text, but to godliness and peace. Douglas Moo comments, Christians need to remember the ultimate bottom line purpose of biblical eschatology, to make us better Christians here and now. Careful study of eschatological passages in the Bible is, of course, appropriate and necessary, and our own human curiosity naturally leads us to speculate about just how and when the events those passages teach will actually take shape in history, but we must not study eschatology for its own sake or for the gratification of our curiosity. Christians bit by the eschatological bug usually end up with vision problems, a tunnel vision in which all they see is the last days. We must never forget, as Peter makes clear in verse 11, that biblical eschatology is to stimulate in believers a holy and godly lifestyle. In fact, you will find no passage in the New Testament on eschatology that does not have that kind of specific practical focus. You see, against these false teachers who deny the coming of Christ in some way, Peter has held forth... No, history isn't on a kind of circular pattern. The end will come. And because it will come, verse 11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Since all that follows, follows from this. You have all these ethical injunctions in our focus this morning. And every one of them 
are derived from the truth, the doctrine of the coming of Christ. In 1976, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, and the title was as clunky as it was potent. I have to read it every time. If I just try to say it, it doesn't roll off the tongue the right way. I have to look at what it is in order to say it right. But the, the title was, How Should We Then Live? How Should We Then Live? And therein he demonstrates with a survey of Western civilization that ideas have consequences. That your worldview determines your actions. And your actions oust what your real worldview is. I'll go so far as to say that nothing is more impactful for a person or for a collection of persons than what they believe about the future. Nothing is more impactful for how you live. You remember whenever Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to them, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. As you read that, section of 1 Corinthians 15, you, you see that Paul is saying, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is all pointless. Why do it? If there is no Christian eschatology, there is no Christian ethic. If this is not true, how should we then live? Eat, drink, and be merry. Consult the author of Ecclesiastes and his advice as to how should we live if there is only life under the sun? Well, whenever we look at other worldviews, the atheistic, the materialistic, the secular humanist worldview, also tell us that everything's going to go up in flames. At least this concerns us. So far as we're concerned, it's all going to go up in flames. But with their worldview, it all happens to no purpose, no reason. As they paint it, the world is either going to end as a result of one, man's stupidity and burning fossil fuels and failing to cut those plastic rings that hold your soda together, or... The sun is just going to get old, its ankles are going to swell, and we're going to be roasted alive. That's, the, that's if we're lucky that we'll go that way. And the best hope that they can offer in light of this worldview is the stuff of science fiction. Interstellar travel to a young sun, a young planet. And note what you cannot squeeze out of that worldview. Ethics. The best that they can do is to tell you don't pollute because it's not nice. Someone else is going to have to live here before it all goes up in flame. And the best hope that they can give you is it won't happen during your lifetime. But really, neither one of those really solve That doesn't get at the ethical dilemma we have because it's nonsensical to not pollute because of some concern for the next person. What do I care? The only philosophy that fits with such an idea is that of Nietzsche. 
Might makes right. Get what you can while you can. He who dies with the most toys wins. Eat, drink, and be merry, and don't let anyone stop you because it's all going to be burned up in the end. In contrast to this, Peter tells us, yes, it will go up in flames, but they will be flames of judgment. There is a judge we must deal with. These flames, verse 10, will expose us. They are a refiner's fire, and they will separate the dross and make plain what sort of people we are. And so it is that Peter asks, what sort of people, because all these things are going to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of godliness and holiness? Now Peter's already answered this question, and he's going to answer it again in the verses that follow. But before we get to the truths that are to come, let's remind ourselves of how Peter's already spoken concerning this. Because of the gospel truths that he unfolds in 1, 3, and 4, that Jesus, by His divine power, grants us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And Jesus, through His great and precious promises, grants, He grants to us these great and precious promises. Through them, we are partakers of the divine nature. And then He tells us in 1, 5-7 through 7, that because this is so, for this very reason... We're to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Because Jesus has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, we are to make every effort at life and godliness. And now what you're seeing here is one of those precious promises, the promise of His return, really the promise of all promises where you enter into the fullness of every other promise. And through that promise, we partake in the divine nature. You see this promise, you see the relationship here. Earlier He said, through these promises, He grants to you all these things. He, he grants to you this grace where you partake of the divine nature and therefore make every effort at holiness and godliness. And now here, because these things will be dissolved, what sort of persons ought you to be? How often do we sin because we have no thought of the future? Consider the ethical impetus of eschatology. This this truth should result in godliness and holiness. How often is it that your sin results because you have no thought concerning this truth? I'm not thinking of the unbeliever who doesn't think in terms of judgment at all. He tries to suppress that truth. I'm thinking about the Christian who at the feet of some idol bites into some kind of promise of power or prestige or some kind of fulfillment in a person or possession. And if he simply looked at these things and thought, all this will dissolve. And because that's so, 
Because there is an eternal day coming, what sort of person ought I to be? Remember, Jesus put it this way. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, what produces this kind of zeal for holiness and godliness here, what drives us to be the people we ought to be, is not an anxious eschatology. It is an expectant eschatology. Verse 12, we're waiting for this coming day of God. We anticipate it. We long for it. We're eager for it. True godliness praise as the apostle John did, come Lord Jesus. I think Peter gets at the reason why so few don't have this kind of longing and expectation whenever he speaks of the saints in his first letters being elect exiles. 1, one Or in chapter 2 and verse 11 of the first letter, he refers to them as sojourners. You see, as the saints, we belong to the future, not to this age that is fading away, but to the age that is to come. In the new birth, we've time traveled. We're part of the new creation that's not fully here yet. That is our home. The reason why so many professing Christians don't wait and long for the new earth is because they're at home in this one. The reason why they have so much anxiety over these things being dissolved is because this is where all their treasure is. And the waiting longing that we're to have is amplified by this next word, hastening. The coming of the day of God, hastening it. This is not to say that we set God's alarm clock. In Isaiah 46, God declares, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Man does not set the clock, but God uses man as his tick and his talk to advance his plan towards the hastening of that day. Jesus commanded us to pray, Your kingdom come. There's a way in which we should mean that. We want to see your salvation present right here and now. But that doesn't subtract that within that we're longing for it to be fully here as well. Your kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus. God means for His kingdom to advance as a result of what He's doing in and through us. A couple of texts in the New Testament, I think, help make this more tangible, more real in our minds. In Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. One reason we should be zealous for world missions, one reason we should be zealous that every ethnic people group know Christ is because whenever the fullness of God's people have been gathered in, He will come. And it's not that we're thinking, hey, if we get on the ball, we can make it happen tomorrow. The idea is that we know He's going to use us. And as He uses us, it is hastening and bringing that day closer present. And we want to be 
used by him. It's simply that we long for it and the thought of we might be used as part of what he does to advance that day to bring it closer to reality. We want to participate in that. You see the same thing in Acts 3, 19 through 20. Peter is preaching in the temple and he says, Repent therefore and turn back. He gives three reasons. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you. Repent that times of refreshing may come. I think that has something... Uh, has a has a uh, angle to it that involves something they experienced immediately but what they were experiencing immediately was the presence of the future the kingdom come into the presence and so it was also anticipating something much more something they would enter into whenever god would send his son again here hastening is spoken of in reference to our pursuit of holiness and godliness We'll soon see in this passage that God delays His return for our salvation, or we could say He delays it for our sanctification, which is a preparation for our glorification, which is an entering into the fullness of our salvation. He's saying that our sanctification, I think, is part of this preparation, this bringing about, in a way, of His full salvation, making everything new, hastening the day of God. Know what it is that we're hastening, though. This day, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies melt as they burn. What kind of people are we? How can we long for this? We cannot stomach this for the same reason we can't stomach the Psalms, not as they are 100 proof, unmixed, undiluted. We like the Psalms whenever they talk about Jesus leading us beside the still waters, but what's this about the enemies of God being destroyed? Well, it shows that whenever we love to sing the Psalms, we don't really understand the glory which they speak of and long for it and desire desire it. The saints long as David did for God to be God. For Him to manifest His full glory, both the glory of His justice and His grace. And we rejoice all the more because we know it's only by His grace that we don't suffer this judgment. But nonetheless, we would that God uphold the value and worth of His name. His name is blasphemed. And we would that justice would come. And that rights would be made. But we look forward for this day not only because... It will end this wicked world in rebellion to the God that we love, but because through these fires of judgment, there will come a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We should pursue holiness and godliness now because that are what clothe the inhabitants of the new heaven and the new earth. We, we, would want, we want to put off the old man who's associated with this age that's fading away and put on the new man that will abide eternally. As the world that then existed, verse 6, perished by water, we're told this, this world has already perished once. I think we should understand this language of destruction and the heavens and earth being dissolved and burnt up in the same way. It's, it's a purifying fire out of which will come something new where the effects of sin are no more. As we long for this 
day, we see that creation also longs for it with us in Romans 8. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation longs for this day with us when all will be made new. You remember in Colossians 1.20 where we're told that Jesus reconciled all things to Himself, things in heaven and things on earth. He's made us new. He is making us new. He will make all things new. New. Now the next command basically repeats what we've heard, but with a different ang- from a different perspective, from a different angle. Because we're waiting for these, this ultimate salvation, we're waiting for this, this dissolving of all things and all things being made new, we're to be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now why add this nuance? What does it add? Holiness and godliness correspond to without blemish, without spot. Why come at it from this angle, though? When we go back to his first letter, we see that this language does draw upon the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. There, in 1 Peter 1.19, we learn that we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And we can't be like Jesus in the sense of perfection. And yet, precisely because of Jesus, we can be like Jesus. Because through His promises, we partake of the divine nature. We're told that the false teachers in 2.13 are blots and blemishes. The idea is that within the temple of God, within the worship of God, they are blots and blemishes, and it's our desire not to be. To be found by Him. To be found by Him by His grace. Like Him. Now the way that Peter speaks of holiness and godliness in chapter 1 assures you that this is how you'll be found if you are indeed in Christ. In other words, you, you are to be diligent to be found this way, not because you're anxious that this might not be so, but because you're assured that in Christ it will be so. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Thessalonians, his first letter to them. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He 
See how natural it is that at peace follows this now? Should be diligent to be at peace. Whenever your waiting and longing evidence itself in this way because of a proper understanding of the end, whenever they evidence themselves as godliness and holiness, you're at peace concerning the end. So much anxiety and fear is due to some kind of concern for the future. So much worry over the future. And so often the advice is, live in the present. Live in the now. And, and there's a little bit to that because you remember Jesus said, don't take any thought for tomorrow. What you're going to wear, what you're going to drink, what you're going to eat. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I don't think the answer is simply live in the moment. The answer is live in a way right now that corresponds to the eternal future. The problem is whenever you're thinking of tomorrow or the next day or the next year or 10 years or 20 years, you're still thinking too short term. You're still thinking right now. You're still thinking about this age that is passing away. Thinking on the end rightly will result in living rightly which will result in peace. Before Luther understood the doctrine of justification by faith, before he was converted, he was wrecked with anxiety and fear and conviction because he knew he would have to appear before a righteous God. The end devastated him. But after he was converted... He could sing, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. Do you see the kind of peace that's there? It's a kind of peace that says, let all of this be dissolved. Even if it's only in reference to me and right now. Because I'm assured of my God and the end. Now this piece corresponds to the next command that you have in verse 15. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. You're not to look so, so look forward to the future that you look down on the present. You're not to become impatient with God's patience. Now, throughout Peter's letter, salvation always has reference to, in, in some degree, to our ultimate and final and full salvation. Indeed, that's the way the term is used most of the time in the New Testament. It's only used once in the second letter. It's used five times in his first letter, and every time it has this kind of eschatological flavor to it. For instance, 1 Peter 1.5 tells us that by God's power we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, salvation there refers to something you enter into fullness at the end. And the reason this is important is because so often we have a really narrow focus of what salvation is. Here Peter is telling us to count Jesus' delay as salvation, his patience as salvation. Count Jesus' not coming right now as part of your salvation. I think this is how Peter worked that out in his first letter. 
get a little bit more context for that passage. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance. That's that living hope. Part of it at least. That is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, which involves this living hope, this inheritance, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus' patience works so that you have a richer, fuller inheritance, a richer, fuller salvation. Count His patience. Count His not coming right now as salvation. In Jesus, all is salvation He works all things together for good. All is salvation. If you're in Christ, His first coming was your salvation. His not coming is your salvation. And His coming again is salvation. This command to count the patience of our Lord as salvation, gives way to an aside in which are enmeshed a couple of other commands. Paul, we're told, also wrote of these things. Survey Paul's letters and you will find in nearly every one of them some eschatological section bent focus. And every time that it is there, there's an ethical flavor to it. And we're told that Paul did this according to the wisdom given to him. This is identical to what Peter was saying in chapter 1 about the prophets who didn't write of their own interpretation, their own thoughts, not, not their own understanding, wasn't produced of their own will, but as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so here Paul has written, according to this wisdom that's given to him. And there's some things that are in Paul that are hard to understand, but what he wrote is Scripture. You see, they twist the other Scriptures, the idea being what Paul wrote, because it's the Spirit that's moving him along. It's this wisdom that's been given to him. What Paul wrote is Scripture. And they twist that just like they do the other Scriptures. The ignorant and unstable twist this. And because they do, here's the command, we're to take care that we are not carried away. We're not carried away with the air of lawless people losing our own stability. The false teachers are unstable. We're not to be carried away so that we become unstable. You remember in 110, Peter said if we practice these things, those ethical virtues that he's unfolded that should follow the gospel promises of 1, 3, and 4, that if we practice these things, we will not fall. 
And then right after that, he tells them he's reminding of them, reminding them of these things, though they know them and are established in the truth. Established, settled, solid, stable in the truth. You see how orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right practice, are intertwined there. And the false teachers know that if they attack one, they've destroyed the other. If they tell you Christ isn't coming back, you have no reason to live the Christian life. Don't be unstabilized by them. And the best way to do that is, verse 18, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul spoke of us no longer being children tossed to and fro by the, waves of, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but instead speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into Him, into every, grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Don't be carried away. Grow. And to grow in the knowledge of Christ is to grow in grace. To grow in grace means that you've grown in the knowledge of Christ Peter, you see, is bringing us back to where he began in chapter 1 and verse 2, his desire for these saints. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. If you want to know the grace of God, it's only to be found here, knowing Christ. In our pursuit of holiness and godliness, is not found by, hey, we've got Jesus and now let's advance on our own. No, our advance in holiness and godliness is an advance in knowing the grace that is in Christ. You never grow out of debt with Christ. You only grow further and further in His debt. This Christ in whom... Holiness and godliness are found. And thus it's fitting that Peter ends this letter with this doxology towards Christ. And it's peculiar in a couple ways. It's peculiar in that it's addressed to Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. This is only one of a few doxologies in the New Testament directly praising Christ. So that's peculiar. But more so is the way it ends. You, you might expect, indeed, a few translations have it this way, incorrectly. Both uh, be glory forever and ever. To Him be glory forever and ever. The better translation is, be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Why put it in that way? Well, the false teachers would have no problem with forever and ever. It's just a circle. It keeps on going forever and ever. No. To Christ be glory right now in this age that's fading away. And to the day of eternity. Not meaning that Christ wouldn't be glorified on the other side of it. It's, it's on that day, that eternal day when it's ushered in. Glory to Him forever and ever is the sense of it. But it focuses on this. This is not a circle. An eternal day is coming. And it will be ushered in by Christ in His return. Are you ready for this day? Do you long for it? Do you anticipate it? Do you desire it? Are you ethically stunted because you're eschatologically starved?
Think on these things. Dwell on this truth. And it will shape how you live right now. Sinner, you are not ready. You are not prepared. This day holds nothing for you but judgment and destruction. But there is grace in Christ. Such rich grace that holds salvation and peace both for this life now and the life to come. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved with a salvation such that all in Christ is your salvation. His coming, His delay, and His return. To Him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, magnify Your Son in us. With regard to this day, as we long for it, as we're bafflingly used by you to hasten it and its coming. And oh, Father, glorify your Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, and manifest your justice and grace to full, to our eternal joy. In Jesus' name. Amen.